1893 to 1955, from the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple to the dedication of the Swiss Temple, from President Wilford Woodruff to President David O. McKay, from the devastation of two world wars to the tension of the Cold War, from saints gathering to Utah to saints gathering in their own lands, Zion goes boldly, nobly, and independent into the far reaches of the world. This inspirational era of church history is concluded next in the final episode of Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Today we have our final episode of the season of the Saints Podcast. Joining us today is Jed Woodworth, Managing Historian of the Saints Project, Scott Hales, the literary editor of the volume, and Lisa Olson-Tate, a general editor for Volume 3. Thank you all for joining us today, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, James. Well, at this point, we can all take a nice, deep breath. The volume is complete, and years of work have finally come to a conclusion on this publication. Perhaps we could help our readers understand a little bit more about the amount of work that's gone into this project. Can you give us a bit of a timeline as to how long it's taken us to produce Volume 3? So the Saints Project was approved by the Thomas Monson First Presidency in 2010. So immediately there was a small team that was assembled to start outlining these volumes. And from the beginning, there was a question of how the volumes would end. And there was no consensus. And then Spencer Fluman at BYU said, well, why don't we end each volume with a temple dedication? And when he made the suggestion, it was apparent how, at least for the first three volumes, what temple that would be. For volume one, it would be Nabu, volume two, Salt Lake, and volume three would be the Swiss temple. Of course, the amount of research that had to be assembled for each volume was vast. I joined the Saints Project in 2016 and was assigned to be the lead historian on volume three. And one of the problems that I encountered almost immediately was the problem of not having enough archival sources for this volume. So I started looking outside of the Church History Library for characters, and we found a number of people by looking in the Harold B. Lee Library at BYU. We found a couple of really important characters for us through word of mouth. Early in the project, the original team of mostly historians who were working on the project created drafts of each volume of the books. In that sense, this particular volume, volume three, has been on the drawing board for about a decade. And about five years ago, it shifted into a higher gear of planning and drafting and research. I think once we finished volume two and kind of had a sense of what the story was for volume two, that gave us an idea of where we needed to go with volume three. And I think once we had volume two locked down, we were able to think more definitely about what we wanted volume three to say and where we wanted it to go and how we wanted it to begin. When I was invited to join the Saints team, Richard Turley Jr., who was the assistant church historian, invited me to his office and he made the invitation. He said, Jed, we'd like you to be the lead historian on volume three of Saints. And this was at a time when Steve Harper was the managing historian of the project. 
And I said, sure, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, I believe that this volume, volume three, is going to be the most interesting volume to saints of the four volumes. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, it's the period of time that the saints know least about. And I think that's true as we look at this period, if I were to say to even well-read saints, okay, what did President Joseph S. Smith do? What did President Heber J. Grant do? What did President George Albert Smith do? I mean, we, we tend to look at periodization in terms of church presidents. I think most saints would be hard-pressed to name accomplishments, even though we know that they accomplish a tremendous amount. This is in distinction to, say, President Lorenzo Snow, who is known for bringing a full tithe back to our church, or President Woodruff, who issues the manifesto and dedicates the Salt Lake Temple and so on. So this is exciting to think that now the volume is going out and the saints are going to be able to learn a tremendous amount of knowledge, I think, on every page that they didn't know before. Jed, you mentioned that this volume covers one of the periods least understood or known by Latter-day Saints, and I know I certainly fall into that category. So I would just love to know from the three of you, how did that fact affect the way you approach the volume, especially compared to the other two? One thing I would say that was of interest to me in thinking about how to shape this volume is that this is the period in which the modern church, as most saints today recognize it. This is the period in which that comes into being. If you stepped into a Latter-day Saint meeting in the 1890s, there would be some differences that would make it seem quite different from how we think in the way the church functions today. But by 1955, if you step into a ward meeting house in Salt Lake City or London or wherever, you're going to recognize a lot of what happens there. So part of the challenge was that a big part of the story that we're telling in this era, besides all the fascinating history and culture and great people, and there's so much of interest in there, but there's also this large component that's institutional. How did we get to the point where we pay a full tithe in the way that we think about it, or the word of wisdom is interpreted in the way that we think about it now, or that everyone in the board expects to have a calling or some kind of a responsibility and the development of the auxiliary organizations in the church. So there's just so many institutional development stories that we had to weave in to this narrative. And those are not the most exciting stories on their face to tell. And so we really tried to find characters and stories that would help us to uncover some of those institutional developments while also keeping the human interest and the cultural background alive and interesting in the narrative. And over the course of the podcast, we've covered each of the chapters in some detail, but we've also discussed in many of the episodes some of the broader themes that have emerged over the course of that chapter. And I'm thinking if we take a step back for a moment and we boil this whole volume down, what do you think are some of the key points that readers will take away as a result of reading volume three? I think one of the interesting themes in the book is the transformation in understanding of the gathering and what that looked like in the 19th century when it was literally a process of gathering people together in one geographical location. 
as opposed to in this period, we see how the understanding of gathering Israel begins to shift towards a single geographical center to establishing stakes and temples and having places for the saints to gather around the world, as opposed to everyone coming to Utah in order to gather. That's something that we see in this book. What we see in this volume uh, is really kind of the globalization of the church, where the church really begins to go global. It's not quite to the point where we see the church today, where we have members all across the globe, but we really begin to see the origins of the global church once this shift in the idea of gathering occurs. And so what's great about this volume is for the first time, we really get to know characters who don't either live in the United States or come to the United States. Because we've had international characters in the past, people like Anna Witso, who emigrated and found their place in Utah. What's great about Volume 3 is we begin to see global stories about people who join the church in foreign lands and stay in their homelands. We learn about how the church got its start in a place like Brazil, and we tell the story of the Cell family. Or we learn about the early members of the church in Japan through the Yanagita family. And these are all people who have really served as pioneers in their own lands. And that's something that really sets this volume apart. That's not really anything that we saw in the first two volumes, even though we've tried as hard as we could to make those volumes diverse and to tell the stories of people who may be from places outside the United States. But with this shift in the idea of gathering, we really get for the first time great stories about the beginnings of the church in individual lands throughout the world. I'd like to make a follow-up comment. So as we look at Latter-day Saints around the world and we see the development of the church in different countries, I think one of the things that defines being a Latter-day Saint in this period is the reputation of Latter-day Saints is vastly improved over Latter-day Saints in the 19th century. And so by 1955, many, many people look at Latter-day Saints as a model minority. They admire LDS people for being industrious and being educated and taking care of their own and caring about family and things of that kind. How this happens is partly something we work out in the volume, but I wish we had done more with it. We had to be in so many different places that we weren't able to allocate as much time on the development of the church's image as, as I would have liked. But we do see this in things like the church president giving interviews with national papers. We see it with the development of radio and late in the volume television and advertising that puts the church in a positive light. But I think the most important thing is simply the saints going out and being contributors in the larger world and becoming people that are to be admired by outsiders. Another thing that we see in this volume related to the internationalization of the church is the idea that people like John and Leah Witso go to the European mission. These are essentially church members from Utah. They go out into the world and they realize that church members who live in these lands already know, and that is that the church doesn't necessarily work the same way for people in the United States as it does for people, say, in Germany or England. And so they realized that as a church, in order for us to grow, one of the things that we need to learn to do is adapt. And so we begin to see the beginning of this adaptation where the Witsos, for example, strive to do what they can in their position to modify certain church practices to make it more applicable and relevant to, say, the Germans or the British. Uh, and so that's one thing that we see over and over again, and it's something that we'll see more and more of when we come to volume four. 
Another theme I think that's really important and related to the theme of gathering is the theme of the work of salvation, temple work, and how that undergoes such profound change and expansion during this period. We start out very early in the book and see President Woodruff's revelation about doing temple work and sealing families and genealogical lines, which was kind of a new idea. It was a refinement to their understanding of how sealing worked at the time. And then that opens the door for this big expansion of genealogical research and genealogical work. We see Susie Young Gates and the work that she does in genealogy and teaching the saints how to do family history research and stressing how important that is. And there's this wonderful chapter, my probably my favorite chapter in the whole book is the chapter where we talk about President Joseph F. Smith's vision of the spirit world and the experience that Sousa has when he shares that with her and she sees immediately how great the implications for that will be for temple work and for helping saints to understand how important that is. And then as we carry forward, we see efforts to expand genealogical resources. We see microfilming after World War II, and we see efforts to make the temple ceremonies available in Spanish, for example. And obviously, the culmination in this volume of that is this dedication of the temple in Switzerland that brings the temple ceremonies to the saints and introduces some new formats and some new ways of presenting those. And those are just a few of the highlights. There's really a major thread through the book of this work of salvation. Can you tell us about some of the challenges that occurred over the course of this volume and how were they overcome? Early on, one of the biggest challenges was how do we work during the pandemic? As I've mentioned in a previous episode, we were probably about a third of the way into the book when the pandemic hit. That required us really to rethink how we collaborate as historians and as writers. And I pretty much set up a writing station in my unfinished basement, which is not the most pleasant place to work compared to my nice air-conditioned office or heated office, you know, depending on the season. I was in a very drafty basement. And in some ways, it really got you thinking about the role of global events on the history of the church and on the church itself in general. One of the things that we see in this volume is the church is not really facing a whole lot of persecution. What we see is the church is now participated in these larger global events. Now that they've kind of become national and global players, we see them involved in the Spanish-American War, and then we see them in World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. And so here we were reading up and writing about all these stories involving these great global events. And here we were in the midst of one, just trying to figure out how to make it work. And that's really what the saints in the book are doing. They're just trying to figure out how to make it work as they are faced with all these global challenges. Not to mention that one of the global events we write about in this volume is a global pandemic. I might even say that the pandemic in some ways forced us to communicate more with each other and more effectively with each other. I felt like our meetings were more to the point, and I think we became far more organized in how we gathered our ideas and how we, we structured the volume. I think it forced us to collaborate in a way that we hadn't in previous volumes. 
I wonder if you could help our readers understand the complexity of this project by talking a little bit about the other teams and individuals who have played a role in the development and publication of this volume. Yeah, I can speak to that. We have many, many review cycles. So after we draft the text, we send it off almost immediately to reviewers both in and outside the department. A lot of the time, these people are professional historians, subject matter experts, people who are familiar with the era that we're writing about and the people that we're writing about. So we get feedback from different historians and we incorporate that into the text. We also send it off to various church leaders, our advisors in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, who read and review and offer feedback. I should also mention we send it first to our church historian and general authority advisor. Uh, this would be Elder Curtis and Elder McKay. So they review it, offer feedback. Then we send it off to our apostolic advisors, and they too give feedback that we review and incorporate. And then ultimately, it goes up to the First Presidency, who always respond with memos offering not only feedback, but also comments on what they liked about the volume and their appreciation for the work that we do. So they do a very careful review of everything we write. And that's one of the big questions, in fact, that we get from people oftentimes when we talk about saints at firesides. They always want to know how involved are the first presidency in this process. And I always say they're very involved. They read it, they comment on it, they follow up on how we incorporate the feedback, and very, very careful readers of the text. In addition to all these layers of review that Scott has talked about, there's vast teams of other people who help bring this book to fruition, including people like our source checkers who go in and review every citation, every detail in the book to make sure that it is backed up by sources. As readers, I hope, are aware, these books are literary, but they're not fictional, and we can't make up any details. And these source checkers really hold our feet to the fire on making sure that everything we've put in the book is backed up by sources. We have editors who do the editing, and then we have people who do the technical work to produce the book, to typeset it, to do the web aspects of the project, because these books are not only published in print, they're also published online. And that's a whole world of its own in doing the web publishing and the, the technical things that are required there. We have a team of what we call within the church product managers. We have a product manager for this series who helps to develop and execute the marketing strategy and awareness and getting the material into other church products and curriculum and so forth. So the core team that produces the books, that does the research and the writing, there's just a few of us involved in that. But in order to bring this project to what members experience with it, it takes really an army of people. And I think outside of the church history department, there are individuals and organizations who have been so helpful in this process. And Jed, would you care to talk a little bit about the way that Family Search has played a role in this volume? Family Search put us into contact with people that we never would have met. So these are primarily descendants of characters or potential characters who have documents in their possession. So these are not documents in archives or libraries, but documents that families hold that turned out to be immensely valuable for saints. Let me give you an example of what I mean. In 2016, 
soon after I began working on Saints Volume 3, I was looking at our potential characters for World War One and the World War One era. And Hiram Smith, who is Joseph F. Smith's son, he was the president of the European Mission. We have a journal from him, and we have stories regarding his presidency. But he was not as interesting to me as I looked at the sources as his wife, Ida Bowman Smith. And what was interesting about her is that she is the first wife of a mission president who specifically set apart to lead the women of the particular mission. So Relief Society women, young women, primary organization workers. But we didn't have any stories connected with this leadership role that she had. We didn't have a journal from her. She died young, and so we had no autobiography, at least none that we knew anything about. And so Family Search went live in 2013. And what that allowed us to do is I could go to Ida Bowman Smith's Family Search page and look on the Memories tab and see the photos that had been posted. And then there's a hyperlink to the person who posted the photos. Well, it turned out that I sent an instant message explaining who I was and what I was doing and saying I'm interested in Ida Bowman Smith's stories. And I got a reply within just a few days from Ida's great granddaughter. And we developed a friendship. She lives in California and we talked back and forth. And through that friendship, she came to trust that I was who I said I was and that she could be of, of help to the project. And she shared with us a talk that the archives didn't have that Ida Bowman Smith gave when she returned back to the States. She gave a talk to the young women at the MIA conference in Salt Lake City, and she told stories about how she mobilized the Relief Society women in the British mission to work on behalf of soldiers and other people in the war who needed help. And on the basis of that talk, we were able to draft a scene that is in the book about Ida Bowman Smith working with those Relief Society sisters, sewing valuable articles that helped the soldiers at the front during the war. I think Family Search was invaluable, and, and Jed can probably speak to this as well, just invaluable to writing about the history of Cincinnati, the Cincinnati branch. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, we found the Bang family through Family Search as I was trying to learn more about the Hope family. I remembered the name Paul Bang who's a prominent early member of the church in Cincinnati. That's really all I remembered about him. And I looked him up on Family Search, and his daughter, Linda, had posted all sorts of documents about him and his wife, Linda's parents. And through that, we were able to gain so much more. I was able to get in contact with Linda, and we were able to get full copies of her father's journal, her mother's journal from the same time period, and countless photos and other documents. And it was just invaluable to being able to tell their story What's neat about this is I think everybody on the team who was involved in research and writing has an experience where Family Search, specifically Family Search Memories, really helped us find characters and tell the stories that we tell in this volume. So the moral of the story is put up your memories on Family Search, and maybe you or your family can be a story in Saints Volume 12 or something down the line. <laughs> 
I always think one of the interesting things is when I start a conversation with somebody who's added a memory or added a story or whatever it might be, is sometimes they've done it because they don't think it's going to be important, but they kind of like it and they want it to be preserved. And they think, well, I don't know if anyone else would ever be interested in this. But within the church history department, it's sometimes these obscure documents that can be just the thing that you need. As in the case before, a talk given at an MIA conference, people will think, well, why would anyone else ever want to look at that? And here we are. It's proven invaluable. We would love to hear which of the stories in this volume of Saints is your favorite and why. Well, as someone who is writing a biography of Susie Young Gates, I just have to say that, of course, I love her and I love her family. I really enjoy the arc with John and Leah Widso and the way that we're able to get to know them and see them from their courtship, their very youngest days, all the way almost to the end of the book through John's service as an apostle and Leah's service in many capacities. And I really love the way that their story shows us generational experience in the church how they represent a particular generation of Latter-day Saints who had grown up in Utah, who were totally committed to the gospel, but who found themselves moving into the modern world and having to, as Jed talked about earlier, become Latter-day Saints and live as Latter-day Saints in different contexts and figure out how to do that and what that meant and help other members of the church figure that out. So those people, of course, are very dear to me. I was going to say, I have two stories that really resonate with me for different reasons. So I'll talk about the first one, and that is the story about Alma Richards, the Latter-day Saint gold medalist at the Stockholm Olympics. And it's kind of funny, on the team, I'm kind of known as the guy who doesn't like sports, which is generally true. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of team sports or watching sports or that sort of thing. But I always have loved the Olympics, and I really like Alma Richards' story. I like any chance that I can get to write a really gripping, visceral story. And I think that's what we see with the story of his jump, where there's some clear conflict there. And so as a writer, it's a really fun story to write. And I just had a delightful time going through the sources and figuring out how to tell that story in a dramatic way. And I think it's some of the best writing that we've seen in Saints. And I think it's one that a lot of young people can relate to. And so I really value the story of Alma Richards. But I think the story that has the most personal meaning to me is the temple trip of the Bang and Taylor families from Cincinnati. When I was looking at their story and as we were planning how to tell their story in the volume, it was really important to me that we tell this part of their journey. Because I think with volume two, what we see time and time again are saints from different lands emigrating to Utah and staying there so that they can enjoy the blessings of the temple. And what I found to be really iconic about the Bang story and the Taylor story is that they were Latter-day Saints from outside of Utah who had lives outside of Utah and attended church outside of Utah, but they did not have access to the temple. They did not live close to the temple. And so what they had to do is they had to travel, just like the saints of old. They had to go west. And so they get into a car and they drive west. But what sets them apart from earlier stories that we've told in previous volumes is that rather than stay there in Utah, what they do is they go back and they build up the church in Cincinnati, which personally has a lot of meaning to me having grown up there. But really, I think that's the story of the volume. It's all about the church taking root across the world. And so for me, that was a really iconic and important story to tell, the story of a group going west, but not staying there, coming back east and building up the church where they first came to a knowledge of the gospel. 
One of my favorite stories came out of a comment that was made by one of our reviewers. He said, there's not enough California in this volume. And at first, I didn't react well to the comment because I thought, well, California, we can't do special pleading for every state or every country. But the more I thought about the comment, the more I realized the the reviewer was correct, that California in some ways becomes an extension of Utah. There's so much movement between Utah and California in this period, and California becomes a place where now there are more Latter-day Saints in California than there are in Utah. So I started scratching my head about this comment and thinking what happens in this period involving California. And one afternoon, when we had to make a decision on this, we were in a tremendous rush, and this comment came at the end of the volume when almost everything was drafted. I realized that early morning seminary begins in California in 1950. So I went to a collection that we had here that was put together in the 1980s by someone who went back and interviewed early seminary teachers in California from the 1950s. So a 30-year gap, and this person went and found these early teachers and interviewed them. And the interview that stood out to me was with a woman named Nan Hunter who was an early morning seminary teacher in San Diego. Nan Hunter was not a college graduate. She said, I can't do this when she was asked to teach early morning seminary. This is the beginning of of members teaching who may not be professional teachers. Furthermore, she was asked to teach the Book of Mormon, and she said, I don't have a testimony of the book. I find the book boring. But the administrator who asked her just was persistent, and he said, you can do this. He had faith in her, and he promised her that if she taught the Book of Mormon faithfully by the end of the year, she would gain a testimony of it. And in this oral history that she gave years later, she tells that story of how she was able to teach the book, and eventually when she got to 3rd Nephi, she knelt down and asked God if the book was right and received a witness of the Spirit and it really changed her life. And so based on that interview and the comment of the reviewer, we were able to draft the scene and get it revised within a day. And all of that just went so quickly and seamlessly. And now in chapter 37, there's a beautiful scene coming out of that. Well, thank you so much, Jed, Scott, and Lisa. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us and well done on a fantastic volume. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, James, and kudos to you as well. This episode concludes the podcast series for Saints, Volume 3, Boldly, Nobly, and Independent. Shaylin and I hope you've enjoyed learning about this remarkable period in the history of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please join us in the future for the next podcast series of Saints, Volume 4, Sounded in Every Ear. Thanks for listening.